I'm Heidi Zuckerman. I've spent my life connecting people to art to make their lives better. This podcast talks about art in contemporary culture and why we should care. Each episode is an impactful conversation with people I find interesting and think you will too about their life, values, and always about why they think art matters. This is Conversations About Art. Hey everyone, this podcast, as you know, is called Conversations About Art, and it complements a book series that I have, which is called Conversations with Artists. And every once in a while, these podcasts do feature artists, and I get to have conversations with artists about art. That's what today is. Those conversations are particularly near and dear to me because artists are at the essence of everything that I care about and value. And I love the opportunity to talk with artists and learn about their work and help to broadcast what they are doing to the widest possible audience. We will get there in just a second. I don't know about you, but I get most of my things done in the spaces between doing everything else. And I gravitate towards the things I can handle from an app on my phone. Kelly Klee Private Client Insurance believes that people with more to lose need better protection for what they cherish. I have insured not only my cars and homes with them, but also my personal art collection. They have an incredibly well-designed app that's not only aesthetic, but the user interface is superb. I can see each work in my collection and its currently insured value, as well as seamlessly and easily, literally from my phone, add new things as they're acquired. Insurance to me sounds like kind of a boring thing to talk about, but particularly in these uncertain times, I sleep way better at night knowing that the things I love are protected. So check out their website, kellyclee.com backslash Heidi. That's K-E-L-L-Y-K-L-E-E.com backslash Heidi. And they will make a $50 donation to Artadia, an art charity I've recommended per each qualified referral. These details are included in the show notes. Is there a piece of jewelry you would like to create? I'm excited to tell you about Best & Co, which offers a smarter way to acquire luxury jewelry. I wanted to create signet rings for each member of my family. Best & Co worked with me to create a custom design and fabricate the rings. We all love them. The rings are a daily and physical reminder of our connection, even when we're not together. Whether you want to reuse sentimental stones from a family heirloom or create a piece that you've been dreaming about, Best & Co. can help you create it, and their effective and efficient business model allows them to provide significant savings to their clients. Clients regularly save as much as 30% and frequently more when compared with purchasing comparable, high-quality pieces from traditional luxury jewelry retailers. So check out their website www.bestincoaspen.com and use discount code HEIDI2020 to receive 5% off of any item on Best & Co's website. I was just looking at it today and honestly, there are a ton of things that I would like to use that discount code for. Also, if you're interested in creating a custom piece, you can email custom at bestincoaspen.com. That's B-E-S-T-A-N-D-C-O 
ASPEN.com and mention that you heard about Best & Co. on my podcast to receive the special discount. Aliyah Ali works between photography, video, and installation, addressing the politicization of the body, histories of colonialization, imperialism, sexism, and racism through projects that take pattern and textile as their primary motif. Textile has been a constant in her practice, and she has recently begun making her own patterns and prints. Her work is also informed by discourses of criminality, Yemeni futurism, and feminist theory. She draws upon many stories, including the nostalgic past of the Queen of Sheba. She and I discuss indigenous symbolism, what is threatening, how to use beauty, vanishing countries, shifts of allegiance, abduction stories, the weight of a job, self-imposed responsibilities, language and truth, being seen the way you want to be seen, inclusion and exclusion and the power of photography, having an actual tribe, ancestral knowledge, who owns the red star, the occupying of myth, and a radically imagined possibility for the future. You are somewhere that connotes a very specific image, at least in my mind, if not in everyone's mind. And I know that place actually plays a role in your work overall, but let's start with where you are today. Yeah, so I'm actually um, now in Roswell, New Mexico. I'm really fortunate to be here. I'm here because of an artist residency called the Roswell Artist in Residence, and um, they provide everything to the artist from housing to a really gorgeous studio to a stipend. And essentially, it's sort of a, what they call it a gift of time. So I just recently graduated from um, the California Institute of the Arts in May. and came here right after, and it's kind of a perfect place, aside from what they're providing, but also the landscape, which I'm sure is speaking to what your uh, impressions or those first images that you're talking about that kind of come up to your, come to your mind. Are you sitting somewhere right now where you can see outside? Well, yes. Right now, it's a beautiful sunny day. It's extremely windy. We just had quite a bit of snow, uh, most of it which melted, which is kind of strange for New Mexico. It's, yeah, it's extremely windy. I think what is really actually more beautiful are the things that I'm not seeing, and that's um, the evenings, the nights, the the skies are just absolutely incredible. When it's a full moon, everything lights up. And it's something that I think we forget because, um, you know, I don't know, I live in cities and so there's a lot of light pollution, there's just pollution in general, environmental pollution. And so just to have that clarity really, I think, has kind of influenced a lot of my work right now and being among nature, even, you know, things that we think are threatening, like seeing scorpions and tarantulas. Um, it's just, it kind of goes back to a lot that I'm working on in terms of indigenous symbolism. And when I say indigenous symbolism, I mean Yemeni indigenous symbolism, but also indigenous symbolism here. 
I love that idea about what we think is threatening and then what actually is threatening and how there are different practical or societal associations with what is a threat. Is that something that you are interested in or have thought about, or is that more of a passing comment? But that strikes me as something really interesting and worth talking about. Yeah, no, actually, um, that's very much to the point of a lot of what my work, you know, I think my the initial part of my process is um, a reaction to societal threats. Um, you know, I, my work focuses a lot on um, the threat then of erasure that's happening to my native land, Yemen, and very much in in regards and in relation to the the threats that are sort of imposed by my adopted land, which is the United States. Uh, so I'm Yemeni, Bosnian, and from the U.S. And then um, a lot of my recent work has really been focusing on these that that relationship, which I find quite toxic and parasitic. And so it starts from there. And then I hope that my work sort of, you know, I process those threats into something different, something beautiful. I try to subvert those threats in my work. Yeah, I find your work to be really beautiful also. And thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> I was thinking about beauty and how beauty can be used in a variety of different ways. And I guess beauty can be threatening sometimes too. But I'd love you to speak a little bit about your thoughts on beauty and how beauty can either temper or mitigate the the threat or at least the idea of the threat to allow maybe this is sort of a leading question I guess but to to allow the openness um, to address things that might otherwise feel like a punctuation well we're only five minutes into this and you got right to the point that's that's perfect um yeah I think this I mean it's quite (laughs) no it's you absolutely shouldn't that's why it's an honor to be here I mean let's get to it because uh I think it yeah it's quite a loaded question because um you know I grew up around war the threat of war um you know my mother is uh you know when I was born I came from Yugoslavia and South Yemen and these countries by the time I was 10 years old didn't exist anymore um, because of the genocide that was happening to the Muslims in Europe, in Bosnia, and then uh, quite a violent, you know, reunification war that was happening in Yemen. And those took place, they sort of spanned over three years at the same time between 1992 and 1995. I was born in 85. And, you know, having those shifts of citizenship, of allegiance, of what does it mean to be a refugee or an exile um, or a migrant. And in, in between all of that, also seeing how certain stories can be kind of picked up and abducted by media. But as a child, as all of this was happening, I have to say that I was very fortunate because I got to experience beauty. I got to experience it through my mother's embroidery, through these incredibly beautifully upholstered spaces in Yemen, you know, the sharing of food still, you know, under sort of circumstances of war. And then it's, you know, with Bosnia afterwards, just these artifacts, many of which were lost or destroyed, but some of which I still have. And I think um, I think that there's plenty of space and room, especially when I'm talking about like the, in, through the news and through politics and through that sort of media, that we can get these direct stories and narratives of violence, 
But what happens is those become so prominent that the beauty of these places and the beauty of the stories actually get erased and um, sort of swelled out. And and for me, I think a part of it, you know, in my, in my undergraduate um, studies, I actually studied, I wanted to be a politician. And I realized that I, I didn't want to continue to propagate some of those narratives. I wanted to subvert them. And I used that word earlier, but that's a really big part of my practice because I think there's another way, there are different points of entry to come to certain narratives. And the way that I come to them is through their beauty. Um, So my work, the way that that translates is that, you know, I do deal with really sort of difficult and problematic narratives. and, and, And I think my job, I guess, in the studio is to try to turn them into something beautiful that kind of can make it into a place and make it enough room for us to have a dialogue for different people different from different points of life to be able to access it and still be able to talk about those difficult, violent stories, but also with the same weight um, and have a balance of what else there is to offer, if, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. It's interesting because you just referenced, you know, what you do as a, as a job. And, and I think being an artist is a job, but somehow the idea of a job and the responsibilities of it, it can feel weighty at times. And particularly when some of the subjects that you're trying to address are pretty heavy. I wonder how you came to being an artist and and how you feel like the responsibility of telling your story showed up for you. I think there is a responsibility. And when I use... um yeah, I think that's a better word actually rather than saying it that it's a it's a job, but it is it, it's it's a for me it's kind of a self-imposed responsibility. You know, we came to the states and uh, we were initially in Michigan in Detroit and then we went to Indiana and it was in Indiana where we my family and I experienced uh September 11th, the attacks that had taken place on the on the in New York. And those were horrible, um, but in that there were a lot of things that came after that really targeted people from my community, being the Arab community, and I guess also Muslim, and in and in that also just other brown communities. But for us particularly, you know, my father lost his job in you know illegally. We two weeks after the attacks, my father came home and said, you know, we're no longer going to be speaking Arabic. And suddenly the language, you know, for being a child of two linguists, where we believe that every language is another soul that you have, you know, a soul, somehow, you know, a soul died because I'd forgotten Arabic. Arabic is, you know, language is something that you need to practice. And so uh, a really, a part of me was was severed and uh, and that, and well, as well to the, my community. And I think about the generations who did stop speaking Arabic and all the stories and, you know, coming from a, or from a history, like an oral history, where these stories were also, had sort of died. And so when I went to, you know, I really wanted to be active. I wanted to be a lawmaker, but I realized that law in and of itself was not really about justice. Law is more about how to manipulate words um, and who essentially does a better performance. 
And and I started really thinking about, I went, I actually started learning Arabic again. I'm fluent in it again. And I realized how it, you know, language can actually be very much, it can be a weapon depending on what, you know, who, on whose side, you know, on who is it serving actually and how it can be used against you. And so, you know, we also look at language, verbal language as a truth. We look to it to find truth. And I put that in quotation marks. But at the same time, I had already so I've sort of compiled all of these credits in studio art. And uh, my two professors, Salem McCuria and David Tang Olson, really started helping me think about how visual language is also a language and how art is, there's a capacity for art to also share various truths and is honest in and of itself that it is, that it presents perspectives, but it doesn't claim to be the truth. There's a lot of room for imagination and also reimagining. And I think that's what really interested me. And there's also room for play. You know, um, it's not to change meaning. Um, you know, we don't think about language as something that's that that evolves. But, you know, within these last 20 years, I see how Arabic has evolved in a way. Um, in fact, I just released a new series called Hub Love, which kind of talks about reclaiming language, the Arabic language, as something that's not violent. Um, after September 11th, you know, two of the words that even to today, when you look at it on Google, if you type the word Talib for Taliban, you know, you find these images of a terrorist group um, and you see young boys with weapons and there's, you don't see girls, you don't see schools, you know, you don't. And that's the only word we have for student is Talib or Taliban. It's the same word for madrasa. Madrasa, if you look at it up on Google, transliterated, I should say, into English, the only thing you'll find is a sort of training camp for young um, child soldiers, boys, um, who come out of, you know, who are Muslim. But in fact, if you type madrasa in Arabic, it's the only word we have for school, and you just see children playing. So if I say ana taliba fil madrasa, all I'm saying is that I'm a student in school, but I could be understood as I'm a terrorist in a training camp. And so I see how 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 language has sort of is also a place, verbal language has been something that has been, um, has, hasn't, has really deserved not only my community, but also other communities. And so I kind of, I turn to textile, I turn to patterns, I go back further into these sort of indigenous ways of communicating um, and documenting. And I attempted my work to level that up as sometimes even more sincere than verbal language. And I think that was when I really, I mean, it took me a while to become, when you say this sort of to claim to be an artist, because I'd, after I graduated from undergraduate, I went to Morocco and I worked for the Marrakesh Biennial, where I was actually working with artists and producing their work in public um, spaces. But then I sort of got to a point where I sat for a photograph for one of my mentors, Hassan Hajjaj, and he said, you know, maybe you should start photographing yourself. And I did, except I did it under textile. And I was much more interested in the power of if I was going to be seen, then I wanted to be seen the way that I wanted to. And to be seen is also a, is also a powerful statement. It's also something radical. And I think before doing that, I wanted to think about what is it that, what are our perceptions? And that's sort of how the textile comes in. 
And that was probably in 2015 when I started really considering myself and working towards being an independent artist. There's so much in there, obviously. (laughs) Um, No, no, no. It's amazing. It's amazing. I I actually got to do an Instagram live with Hassan and he is an incredible artist and thinker and community builder. And I love that he encourage you to think about how to be seen and the thing that caught my eye about your work were those photographs where there's a figure covered by the textile and thinking about you know who who is not being seen you know who's there yeah precisely I mean I think there's this uh and, it, and really what it comes to for me, I mean, particularly like it started with my first series, Cast No Evil. I have to be honest, I was so, I, I was in Morocco, it was in the dead heat, and there was this uh, exhibition that had come out and they had asked for shades, the, the, the exhibition was called Shades of Inclusion. And I really kind of thought, I, I, I thought, how can we even talk about inclusion if we're not, if we're not thinking about what does exclusion mean? And um, and thinking about the power of what does it mean to be a photographer if we're talking about scene, um, about the gaze, and the power of being behind the camera, and who is it that the that the photographer is essentially taking the image of, and and I wanted to play both sides of that, you know, to be both the observer and the observed, the one who's making the gaze and who is sitting for it. But in those images, you know, and in many of my images, all you see actually are the, is the textile in between. So both, neither of them are being seen, neither the photographer or the person photographed. And I think that's a way of sort of balancing that power. And I, I think about other photographers who I grew up looking at, uh, you know, National Geographic and even some Magnum photographers where, you know, they'll kind of go into places and really kind of enact these violent words of capture and shoot. And that really actually is another way, if we're talking about how verbal language has deserved communities, photography is as well. You know, the camera also becomes this tool but and a weapon as well, where a certain, I always kind of go to this uh, Afghani green-eyed girl by Steve McCurry, who, when I lecture about it, I kind of mention this and people immediately, everybody knows this image. But, you know, what does that say about Afghanistan, where there's this girl that we want to, that's a little bit lighter skinned and she has green eyes, someone, she's young, you know, she has these sort of tattered fabrics on her. She's someone that the West can come in and save. And to me, that is really furthering that Orientalist view of of Afghanistan. But people also don't know that it's Afghanistan. They just think that it's sort of the quote-unquote Middle East, which is a whole other topic, which is also a violent term. And um, and it really, it reduces individuals to these, to victims, or as I was describing in the language earlier, as villains. There's no room for heroes or individual individualism. And so for me in these photographs, I kind of take away this power of looking at what is the difference of rather rather than focusing about what the face looks like or the eyes, you know, thinking about what are these fabricated barriers that actually are between us, that textile becomes this sort of, it adds this texture, you know, this physicality 
to the politics, to the class, to the borders, to the traumas, you know, what are the things that, dif- you know, to gender, what are the things that differentiate us? And that sort of translates later on into a project that I did called Borderland, where I remove myself from under the fabric and I worked with master artisans from different parts of the world, um, 11 regions. And I say that not by countries because many of these masters come from indigenous communities that actually don't define themselves by the borders from within which they they're sitting. And so rather than going in and photographing them in the fields or working or, you know, weaving, I was really much more interested in photographing their stories on their terms, which is the way that they document. In many of these cases, they're verbally illiterate, but they're extremely literate in textile and motif. And so they document their stories in these textiles. And I was interested in not how they looked, but what they could produce with their hands and their imagination, with their narratives, with their storytelling. And so the textile becomes a portrait of them, and they're the ones who sit beneath it. And we we kind of, we go into a collaboration with it as well. So they are seen in that we, uh, whenever I present the work, there's always a list of ways in which people can contact them directly without a middle person in order to purchase directly from them their textiles. And then I use also use their physical textiles to upholster the space because it's just a reminder that my photograph is just a representation of the actual story which needs to be presented. When I'm listening to this description, I was picking up on your use of the word class as well. And you described your background uh, and talked about the United States and you know, you live here and you know that class is not discussed in the United States. And it's sort of a, it's probably the most undiscussed, most substantially impactful aspect of what determines daily existence. And there's so much coding that goes into understanding class in the U.S. And I wonder with the presentation of the textiles from the different regions and the commissioning How coded is the reference to class in those materials as well? Yeah, that's actually a really wonderful question. And I think it comes from, you know, and wondering what is what is imposed. I have to be honest in that in many of these places, I can't play. I can't be naive to say that I go, you know, I spend five to six weeks with the masters and I really focus very specifically on the textiles and on the on the motifs. In one case in India, for example, you know, the images, these textiles that stand between different, you know, that are produced by different classes, or I should say that are worn rather by different classes, stand side by side in the gallery next to each other or in, you know, on my website or in the catalog. Um, So there's this sort of equal space that they take up. And when I mean that by class as well, I mean, for Yemenis, I mean, we have a pretty inherent tribe, you know, that our tribal system is pretty, which is actually pre-Islamic and pre-Judaic. It's so significant that it's somehow also, you know, played its way into the contemporary society, which doesn't exist in other parts of the Arab world. And also, I should say, we were colonized by the British, right? And so that also plays a role, which, you know, it 
after the British, it actually, you know, in, in, in the UK, class plays a very, you know, and it, it is very articulated. Um, and after that, um, Southern Yemen became communism, became communist. And so I don't, I mean, at the moment, you know, I haven't really addressed them in that regard, except to say that, like I mentioned earlier, to me, I really let the patterns and working with the different masters, kind of letting them kind of, for me, it's more interesting about bringing those patterns forward. Now, how they how they relate in terms of where they sit in class, um, there there isn't any further investigation into that. And I'm not sure if I'm really interested in that so much as to talk about the sort of, you know, the the historical or the the these other sort of narratives. In one case, actually, in those specific two works that I'm mentioning that uh, one where it's a really sort of regal image, uh, like with with it's a sari that has gold embroidery and brocade and uh, mirrors that are sort of outlined with gold thread. And in another one where there are also mirrors, um, but they're with cotton thread that is dyed with the flowers. You know, I look at both of them that mirrors are actually to represent the protection from the evil eye. And so that protection happens to for everyone. And that also then you can kind of draw those similarities to different different parts of, you know, of the of that mapping that I created in Borderland that you can see how um, you can have, for example, scorpions as we come back to scorpions and or or snakes in my in my region of the world or like in my, from my tribe, which are also meant off to, meant toward the evil eye. And so drawing these connections between the different indigenous communities that I photographed and the textiles. I love the, what to me would be a casual reference to your tribe. And I also agree that language evolves so much over time. I'm a mom of two kids and some of the slang that they use now has literally the opposite meaning of what it had when I was their age. And it's, <laughs> it's disconcerting sometimes. But really interesting because it means that we have an opportunity to constantly be thinking about what it is we take for granted or what it is that we think that we know. And there are certain terms that get popularized or taken and used in a way that feels very casual, like the idea of a tribe. And I would love you to expand on how you use that term and what it means for you. Oh, I love you. I, I love that you asked that. Thank you. It's something interesting, especially also, which actually can kind of bring me back even to Roswell. You know, um, we have this term in Arabic, it's called Qabila, which is tribe, or I should say in Yemen, let me be very specific. Qabila is a tribe. And in fact, in Yemen, we have three legal systems. We have the Sharia, which is the Muslim legal system, the Jumhuriya, which is the Republic. And uh, and then you have the Qabila, which is the the tribal law. And so that's probably, I actually did a film on it and went out during my undergraduate to kind of look at why things were happening in Yemen, because law is based on the fact that there is only one law, otherwise there is a lawlessness. You know, and so the fact that Yemen sort of can, that there's three legal systems coexist somehow, I thought was really interesting. And so I, um, 
we were always very, uh, we always had an allegiance to the tribal law. And the tribal law is, as I mentioned earlier, called abila, which is oral. It's unwritten. And it kind of falls into a system of a class system uh, where you have sheikhs that sort of carry out these laws. And it's really about honor. It's about um, a handshake. You know, it's about, it's really about maintaining loyalty So a handshake is much more than what we would have in a contract or a law of court here, because it could also mean your life or the lives of your, um, your, you know, the other tribal members. And to me, it's something that also is within the name. So, you know, my name is actually Ali Ali Muhammad Radman Al-Qubati. But when we came to the States, Al-Qubati got cut, you know, got removed. And uh, eventually, you know, the middle names got removed. And so I ended up, you know, with my artist name, I just kind of go with Alia, the daughter of Ali, really, Alia Ali. And those that, you know, there's something that always roots me back to the village, you know, which are, we're in the highlands in Yemen. And with that, you know, we have our own dresses. Our our symbol is the snake, al-hanash. Um, not to be confused with this notion that the snake is something that's evil that has come with, uh, you know, the story of Adam and Eve. But in fact, the snake is about, it's supposed to represent the feminine. It represents something um, that is about power and patience, which again is to me pre-Islamic and pre-Judaic. It's something that comes really much deeper from where we are originally from, which are the Sabaeans. The, you know, Sheba used to be Yemen. The queen of Sheba was Belqis. Also her name got erased, which is what I'm working on my futurist work right now. So right now, kind of looking at my futurist work, I'm really um, on Yemeni futurism. I'm really kind of digging back into these indigenous symbols and roots of what does it mean to be Sabian? What does it mean to be Qubati? Um, before there were these active erasures that happened with organized religion. And I think for me to kind of, I, I, as I mentioned earlier, I just finished uh, CalArts and one of the most, uh, I've been very influenced by these, uh, by Mercedes Dorame who's also a mentor and has become a really great friend, who's Tongva. And what does that mean to be indigenous of a place? And Tongva, just to kind of clarify it for the listeners, is that uh, is the original land of what where Los Angeles sits today, of the Tongva community. And, and what does it mean to actually be, somehow be, you know, in exile of the land and have have all this land occupied and yet it, you're still on your land. And I think about that now, particularly in the, in, you know, we have a lot of these conversations around it and, and do, you know, what I say, I, I'm, I think a lot about the vocabulary around what does it mean to in, be indigenous, to be native and to use the word tribe. And just to your point, Heidi, that's true. Cause I think people now say, oh, you know, my tribe, like my best friends, but I, I kind of stick to this word because I also think that, to me, that is what it has always been. It has been, you know, it's something, this is the tribe, this is my actual tribe that I come from. And just because it's being used in other ways uh, and that people, maybe younger generations who may not have been so connected because their lives or their gen- their sort of ancestry has migrated um, through, you know, in different ways that they they need to hold on to a word like that. Um, 
you know, I'm not really sure what to think about that. But that, as long as that's not erasing people who actually do come from tribes. And I think the part of that is embracing what it is that we have that other people cannot, and that's community. Ancient, ancient community and ancestral knowledge. Mm. That idea of ancestral knowledge came up in a conversation when Pinkos Thomas was on my podcast as well. And the responsibility of connecting back to that. When you think about ancestral knowledge, I was struck earlier when you talked about how when language disappears, it's as if a soul dies. I think that's the way you said it. And I am in my mind connecting these two things, like the ancestral knowledge and the sort of soulful knowing of that and wonder if that makes sense to you, that connection. Is that, does that work? Is that right? Yeah, that's, yeah, that's, um, you're making this very easy. <laughs> so thank you. This is actually, yeah, that's to a, that's actually to a point right now to the, to what I'm working on. So, you know, as I was working on um, this, you know, you, probably a lot of why we're talking is around my photographs, but I think also as an artist, it's important for me that I'm challenged and that I grow and I'm really interested in what happens. And I also realize how challenging it is. And I'm, I, I'm embracing that of what it means to be making not only static images, but also moving images and the introduction of sound and how do, does that translate into these experiential places. And so this notion of Yemeni futurism and trying to dig, as I mentioned, deeper into this ancestral knowledge, one of the things, of course, is like this point of departure that I have, which is always through verbal language. And, you know, my Arab side is, you know, it has having both Muslim and Jewish roots and trying to really remove from what it means to be Arab, even though all Arabs come from what is considered Yemen today. They come from these seven tribes that have sort of moved across Western Asia and North Africa, um, also in quite violent ways because they were also colonizers. But also coming back to what the source was, which is Sabian <clears throat> and Himyarites. And for the Sabians, I thought, look, if I'm if I'm trying to imagine a future that is an intervention to this dystopic present that is yet that Yemen is experiencing sort of entering the seven year war there. And I would like to create a sort of radically imagined future then for 3000 years from now, then I need to kind of dive back into 3000 years ago. And 3000 years ago, they, you know, people in the region would have been during the time of Belqis would have been speaking Sabian. And when I heard it, in my studio at CalArts, it was really, you know, you can find these scripts and um, recordings. And so not from the time, obviously, but from people who are kind of interpreting it now, it was really incredible because Sabian is considered a dead language. And as I heard it, I understood so much of it in the Yemeni dialect. And it was this incredible feeling of, of sort of these, the ends of my nerves that I'd never felt before. It was really like my soul had just sort of been catapulted and, you know, all the way, you know, I could feel it sort of in the depths of the land and in the language from 3,000 years ago. And I was pretty frozen. And at that moment, one of my best friends, Naama, who's Israeli, came in and she was looking at it and she thought, oh, she, you know, she reads Hebrew. And so she said, oh, I actually can recognize some of that, but I can't 
understand it. And I thought, you know, if 3,000 years from now, the language wouldn't look, as we were talking about it evolving, it wouldn't look the way that it does now. So I've been working on creating an invented language, um, or I guess an evolved language that actually brings together Hebrew, Arabic, and Sabaean, and again, subverting that notion that the language is dead. It's not. And um, so, it, and actually kind of coining it Sabiani. And the reason that this sort of comes back even to what this ancestral knowledge, it might be, it might make more sense to explain why, where this story comes from, if you're interested to kind of go to that. Yeah, definitely. I was going to ask that as my next question. <laughs> okay, great. Um, yeah. And maybe, maybe describe, I mean, you sort of reference what it might look like, but I'm interested in it conceptually, but also aesthetically. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I made this uh, series and I'll, I'll get to kind of how it sort of manifests. Um, I made this uh, when I first, one of the reasons I went back to graduate school, which is which I was quite late. And this is just, I guess, as a reference for anybody who, any artist who does want to go to graduate school is that you don't need graduate school to, to be an artist. But for me, the reason that I went was because I wanted, I needed to have other perspectives on how to approach something so personal. And it came to responsibility of really talking about the war in Yemen. And I made this, um, I started by creating a timeline and trying to understand what it is and why is this war happening in Yemen. And it was really focused on the massacre of these 42 children who were on a school bus in the northern part, Sada, which they were killed by an inaccurately targeted Lockheed Martin bomb by the Saudis. And um, so I started by naming them as the victims, um, but I also wanted to name the culprits. And from that, um, I just went into a full year of making these lists of politicians and lobbyists and weapons manufacturing companies. And of course, it came down to myself as a taxpayer. And so after doing this, this project, it basically turned all of this research, rather than redacting the information, turned into really highlighting all this information. And I put it into a binder, which then became a video called Conflict is More Profitable Than Peace, which I actually make it available on, on my website so people can just watch it. But it became so, that was really kind of marking this dystopic present. And I ended up getting this scholarship, um, this grant from the, it was called the Alan Sekula Fund. Um, and it it was based, it was on social documentary. And I, and I wanted to go work with Yemeni communities and not focus on politics or religion, but really see what is it from the diasporic communities in Tel Aviv, in Jerusalem, in, in the UK, in Brooklyn, in Detroit. What is it that we all have in common that other people don't have in common? What makes us Yemeni? And among, you know, these amazing conversations of music and poetry and food and incense and jokes, there was also some cosmic stories. And one of them that I found that was pretty interesting that I thought I only had was the story of the Red Star and Najm al-Ahmar. And the story is, and I always thought that the idea is that you know, all Yemenis will always have the red star to look at wherever we leave, whenever we go on the Mahjar, which is the migration, be it 3,000 years ago or now. And when I asked different people, some people thought it was Venus. I thought it was sun because Queen Belqis prayed to the sun. And then kind of looking deeper into it, the story goes that the Queen Belqis was um, 
you know, she was the most powerful ruler of the region um, of Southern Arabia. The Phoenicians and the Romans didn't even get that far because of the desert, but they did trade with the civilization. And she traded in frankincense and myrrh. And um, there were also lots of mariners. And so uh, through that, there was a huge civilization and in terms of architecture and artifacts, which are now found actually at the Smithsonian and um, problematically in the Sackler collection, but also in the British Museum, because many of the provenance is quite unclear. And so you think about, because she was such a strong ruler, we also believe that she was a jinn, which means that she had these other powers. And through those powers, she also spoke to another wizard in the North, King Solomon, who wanted to meet her. And she agreed as long as he brought her the, a gift the size of her power. And so he gifts her the red star. Fast forward to 1997 when NASA sent the first pathfinder to Mars, three Yemenis tried to sue NASA for invading our inherited star, our inherited planet. And it was actually recorded in CNN and on the BBC and authority in a really mocking way. But I kind of use that as a point of departure, especially at this time right now of space colonization. And what does it mean that, you know, not only have we been sort of colonized and occupied by organized religions where, you know, these matriarchal lineages and narratives have been erased, but also um, what does it mean where even now the land is going through an erasure, these artifacts are being kept in other places where we cannot access and that even our dreams and our myths are being occupied. So from this, that's why it sort of comes to like not only pulling the language from 3,000 years ago, but recently I did this uh, exhibition at the Benton Museum just outside of Los Angeles, where I did a mural throughout the room of these characters, and essentially it's a letter from the future. And the way that it it really draws on a lot of symbolism, like, uh, you know, there's the, there are a lot of, you know, there's the eye, you see symbols of, uh, of snakes, of scorpions, of which, of spiders, which are all f- strong female symbols. But also kind of looking, I've been also studying a lot of Hebrew and Sabaean, um, and I already know Arabic. And so what you see is that there's a lot of, uh, there are a lot of there are a lot more curves that happen. Um, there's n- it's not linear, so it's not like it's read. Even though I write it from right to left, as you would in Arabic or Hebrew, um, but I also write it up from up down. So there's really there's no particular point of access, and the way that it's sort of experienced is in its entirety rather than a one beginning one point from the beginning and one point of the end that it there is you know this it kind of breaks this linear time frame and it becomes more cyclical in which you can access it in the microscopic way but even in a macroscopic way where you you embrace it entirely and it's also activated by um, by UV you know by black light so it there are different you know if if sun hits it it really reads in a different way than when it is in the dark I love hearing about this strong female leader. I don't know this story. And I'm so glad that now our listeners have heard this as well. I'm also pretty struck by this idea that even now myths are being occupied. And then the idea that the language that you are synopsizing, I mean, you're creating it, but you're also synopsizing it this idea that there's no point of access and through that 
it's actually incredibly accessible. So it's like the opposite of one of what one might think. That's right. Exactly. I mean, I write about it, um, you know, in my, in my um, recent, uh, I just released a catalog around this exhibition with the Benton um, and that was curated by Rebecca McGrew um, with Hannah Grossman. And kind of thinking about it, this book ended up becoming, uh, I worked on it with Kimberly Varela, who is this incredible designer. And the way that she describes it is actually like simultaneous structures, because when we were, we were, as I was building the exhibition, she was sort of building this book and it was this constant back and forth of, you know, what could work. And on one side, they are actually two books at the same time. Um, so when you open, when you take off the cover, you open it, they sort of lay flat two books side by side. And on the right side, you have conflict is more profitable than peace that is very linear. It reads as a binder. It's entirely in English with, uh, as, as opposed to it being redacted information, as I mentioned before, it's highlighted and it's essentially an appendix. It is this existence, this dystopic present. Um, and you can kind of, you know, you, you read it either from left or right or right, or right to left. Um, but I think most people would come to it from left to right in the sort of, you know, English or I guess Roman direction, whereas the other one actually is built up vertically. You know, there are different layers. The pages are different sizes. There's a lot of play with language. Like, for example, the lexicon, you, you look at it in when you're reading it, all the English words are backwards and even the letters are backwards. So they become familiar. You can you, you kind of see what you're looking at. But once you turn the page, you really you can read it. And it has that play that even when, you know, when I'm working in Arabic or when I try to write things in Arabic, like with subtitles, you know, people will say, oh, you're writing it backwards. Well, it's not backwards. It's just the other way around. So we already actually, even when, you know, you're editing, for example, on video, some people who might be listening to this are sort of video editors, you know, you're still, even on, on our keyboards, everything is sort of set in this, you know, Roman language and this sort of direction that you're always going from left to right. And, but that is also not to say that I think in the future, you know, I don't think that it also has to be, why would I only limit it to being right to left? And so if Yemenis at the moment can't even imagine ourselves moving, I have the privilege of moving because I do have a U.S. citizenship that I got, you know, that we got, we were quote unquote naturalized, right? Um, but that I got before September 11th when things were a little bit easier, a lot easier. And I have the privilege of having scholarships to go to school. I can move, but yet my family in Yemen cannot. And because of the blockade, they can't even leave the country. And until just recently, since Biden has sort of lifted the Muslim ban, they couldn't even access here. And so, and you know, with Brexit, so thinking that there's no longer a place for Yemenis to really imagine moving on this horizontal level across the world, then the only way to imagine it is to really hold on to our myths and start imagining the future on this vertical plane, which is uh, going back to the thing that we've inherited from our ancestors, you know, the Queen of Sheba, Queen Belqis, from 3,000 years ago, and to imagine it as Mars. Now, do I, or like the Red Star, do I imagine that it's Mars? Well, I think that that could even be more expansive, and it could be, you know, a star in another, in another galaxy. But I think that's just interesting to kind of tie it into what, where that is. So I think also when you're talking about 
this, you know, occupying our myths and our dreams. I would also kind of extend that even to our symbols, by the way, that, you know, as artists, we have this, I don't, I wouldn't necessarily say responsibility because I don't want other, you know, other artists to kind of think, oh, it's our responsibility to stand for and represent. But for me, it's a, it's a, it's a place to reactivate some of these. And like I said earlier, to reimagine some of these narratives and to make sure that they're inclusive of the way that we believe ours, our narrative should be told on our terms, not by our colonizers and not by people who, not in languages that we don't know. And so in this book, I also talk about how these words kind of exist at the edge of meaning. Um, so in my film, Mahjad, which I also make available online, I don't want it to be too precious that people can't access it unless they have a, a ticket somewhere. Um, but it, I do speak it. And it becomes enough that Yemenis might be able to understand it, but they don't fully understand it. And so when you go through the film, there's a lot of play with language where you see even an article from Al-Thodi talking about the, the lawsuit, which is, you know, in the 19, 1997 by the three Yemeni tribesmen. On NASA, you see the English version by CNN, and then you see Al-Thodi, and Al-Thodi is much longer, much more extensive. It really describes everything. And so as an English speaker, you realize that you're missing something. There's something missing. There's something that, there's information that you don't have access to that you're not getting. Now, is it for me to present that access, to, you know, to present that I'm not, you know, I don't think, I don't think so, because I think that there's a way for, there's also importance of acknowledging that we don't have all the information because of knowing a dominant language like English. There's a lot that's lost. You can't see me because we're recording on audio, but I'm smiling. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I love this idea of not just thinking and connecting horizontally, but thinking vertically and along the vertical axis. And I often talk about fear being kind of at the lowest point of the vertical axis and transcendence being at the uppermost point. And the closer you get to fear, the further you are from transcendence. And the closer you get to transcendence, the further you are from fear. And it just strikes me that a lot of what you're working on is not just problematizing things that people already know, but providing opportunities to think differently about things that we already thought that we knew. I'm so grateful for that comment. I'm so grateful for that comment. Thank you. Um, and I think that's that's really all I could ask of, you know? And I think that's really beautiful. Thank you for that. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. And maybe that's actually the perfect place to end. There, I had about another 50 things I wanted to ask you about, but hopefully this is the first of additional conversations. Absolutely. Thank you so much for being available today and for sharing your work and your ideas and yeah, making it. Yeah. Thank you so much for making the time um, and for inviting me and just providing the platform. Um, I'm really, really grateful. Thank you. Fantastic. Enjoy the rest of your day. Yeah, you too. Thank you so much, Heidi. Conversations About Art is part of Art. This episode was produced by Simonilla. Our theme music was composed by Eric McDougall. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and review us on whichever platform you listened, as it helps us further our goal of connecting all to art. 
We will be back again every Tuesday with new episodes. Thanks so much for listening.